All right, y'all, welcome to the Mad Rhythms Podcast Network. This is the Either And Podcast, and I'm your host, Brill Barry. When there's contention or controversy, most people believe the solution has to be either or. I believe the solution lies somewhere in either and. All right, welcome, welcome, welcome to the latest episode of the Either And Podcast. I am your host, Brill Barrett, and today we are talking about CRT, critical race theory. And to do that, I brought a special guest on with me because I told you this season I want to do a lot more talking, a lot more conversations with other folks, sometimes in agreement, sometimes not in agreement, so we can start having real conversations about real things. So joining me is Mr. Tristan Bruins. Give it up. Yeah. Hello, everyone. <laughs> this is Tristan Bruins from the Gasps from a Dying Art Form podcast and the Mad Rhythms professional tap dancing company that's right so if you don't know me and tristan go back like full flat tires and on the dump truck we down like that um i, I messed it up back like fourth grade kindergarten whatever y'all, y'all get what i'm trying to say it's a bad joke this is why i tap dance and talk jokes ain't my thing but anyway so me and tristan we go way back uh tristan's been a member of matt rhythms the professional company for 2009 10, 10 12 years 2009 Oh, yeah, 19, 20, 20, what's that, 13 years? Sure. Yeah, you've been around for a minute, man. Um, And uh, actually this year, just to give him a shout out, the production that Mad Rhythms is creating for our big end of the year program, our Chicago Tap Summit, is going to be created, choreographed, and produced by none other than Tristan Bruins. You want to tell everybody about that just for a little bit? What's what's the show? What, 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 what are we working on? Well, uh, the show is called... What it's like to be human. The plan right now is to have three movements, all focusing on the research that I've been doing over, uh, well, that I started pre-pandemic, when I had a lot of time to read. (laughs) And it's uh, focusing on different movements throughout history, in particular the antebellum and postbellum labor movements in the United States, the Haitian Revolution with, you know, Toussaint, and the... Toussaint's Louverture. Louverture. And uh, they... My French accent ain't no better than yours. I've seen YouTube videos with people, <laughs> three scholars talking about, about it, it, they all say his name different. L'Overture. So L'Overture. L'Overture. That's the French. That's the French. Um, so it's interesting. So you said you started doing a lot of research during the pandemic, and you're working on this show, and it's kind of the 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 end all to a lot of that research, like putting it out there as a as a presentation. But uh, let's go back a little bit. So I always tell this story um, about some of the earlier conversations you and I had regarding yeah. race and things like that. And you uh, you often tell it in a way that I didn't realize until you repeated it back to me. Mm. But uh, it was a somehow I was talking about uh, apartheid in South Africa. I don't yeah. remember how we got into that conversation, why I made the statement I made, or, or exactly what happened. I remember. What 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 was it? What do you remember? Because we were, I forget exactly what we were talking about, but I made the dumb comment. <laughs> I was like, well, it's got to be like the opposite in Africa, right? Like it's probably better to have dark skin and then, you know, oh. like I imagine it'd be, you know, because that's, you know. Because that's Africa, yeah. That's Africa, that that, that just, should be, like, that we, should make sense. I remember we were sense. driving in the car come, uh, going, uh, w- West on 290, just uh, getting out of the city. Uh-huh. And you couldn't really look at me, but I saw just your eyes, <laughs> the pupils of your eyes just kind of moved at the corner. <laughs> and just a small, like, lowering of your chin and a shake of your head. And you're like, man, <laughs> have I got a story for you? Yeah, and so I remember sharing things with you about apartheid and what was going on in Africa. And uh, what I, I, did you say you went and looked up stuff after that? Or, like, how did you kind of get into that yeah well i looked up some stuff uh my entrance into writing Mm -hmm. during the pandemic when i got my job at c chicago dance okay the first thing i did was enter a writing workshop our subject was the jomba festival Mm -hmm. taking place and uh the kwazulu university okay kwazulu natal university in durban okay in south africa Uh uh-huh so I was like, well, this is my chance to learn a lot. And of course, you know, dance artists, especially during the pandemic, everyone's 
super emotional and touchy feely. And uh-huh. they're like, this is influenced by so and so. This is influenced by this and that. Uh-huh. So I'm like, well, I'll go and look up so and so, and I'll, you know, uh-huh. someone will explain to me on YouTube about <laughs> this and that. So I learned. Uh, I just got like my South Africa apartheid crash course. You know? and there's, <laughs> there's still a lot to that I mean to get into when mm-hmm. I got some time. I got a thick book. Well. It's very thin on my tablet, but it would be like thick it would in real be a life. thick book in real life. Okay, just about African philosophy and a lot of it's focused in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Just because we have Jim Crow apartheid, they're so late. Just the ability to record people, you write stuff in in journals now, and it, it lives forever. We mm-hmm. don't like piece stuff together and uh-huh. think what people are saying. You know, so it, it's it, it's very interesting, depressing well, you, but interesting. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. It so <laughs> when I start thinking about wanting to do a podcast and have this at CRT as the subject matter, you were the first person I thought about to have the conversation with, and I remember sharing that with someone else, and they were like, "You picked the white guy to have the conversation about CRT," and my response was, "He know more stuff than most people know about a lot of stuff because he's." taking a deep dive into a lot of things. So I just want to say, you know, to give you credit for, you took a deep dive, man, and I don't know if you've come out yet, but (laughs) but you've been, you know, your your book reading, your amount of arming yourself educationally is more than most people would do. A lot of people would just be content in what they don't know or what their side of the opinion they think it is, and they would leave it at that, and they would fight that. I mean, you know. Take a look at any example you see in modern day conversations. A lot of people take sides. And this is a thing about CRT. You hear all these debates and then somebody will say, well, what is it? Do you even know what it is? And that person for that rest of the debate can't answer what is CRT. So I'm like, that's proof positive that people are arguing stuff that they don't even quite understand or know themselves. And so you and I decided to do this. We actually, you know, full transparency, we did one last year, but you and full transparency, you were so excited. You had a lot to say and a lot to share. And I ended up being a student on my own podcast and I spent most of the time just nodding and listening to you uh, on my podcast. So, you know, but that just goes to show that you can learn if someone has that that information and, and you're interested in it. So this time we're coming back. I've you know, it's it's a almost it's a is it a year later? No. It's almost a year later. A good amount of time. Well, it's later. yeah, some time has passed and there's a lot more stuff happening. Um, we've watched people get elected off of CRT. We've seen debates on TV. We've seen research. Like, all kind of stuff has come out about it, and I think it's even more a thing now because at first it was just the thing that everybody on one side argued against and everybody on the other side argued for. But I think now intelligence is starting to wane into the conversation where people are actually pulling it apart analyzing it, discussing it, and having discussions based on that aspect, which is what I think we'd like to do. So, um, but I don't know, what, what do you think about it? Like, in terms of having this conversation, what makes you want to have the conversation? Let's go there. I get real sad because, yeah, it's ve- like you said, it's very clear that nobody's, or I don't want to say nobody, I hate, whenever, I hate when people go like, nobody's heard, or like, everybody says, because... That's already factually not true. But most, the vast majority of people I've seen talk about this, it's very clear that they haven't actually read the literature. Most people have read, (laughs) the people that talk about it have usually read one book and usually just like the first chapter of one book. And Mm -hmm, it's an mm -hmm. introduction to critical race theory by Richard Delgado and Gene Stefanczyk. Okay. Stefanczyk. And if you type in critical race theory and PDF or just introduction critical race theory, a free copy pops up. Mm-hmm. So it's very easy to get. That was the first thing I read okay. to kind of get used to it. Mm-hmm. And it's fine. It's good. Mm-hmm. But like everything, it's not it's, the whole picture. It's it's so there's been so many people saying so many different things, mm-hmm. often conflicting with each other. That to pinpoint it in any one way, it'd be like to say, like, American literature Mm -hmm. is this. (laughs) Right, right, right. But how would you... Which people have said. You know, but, like, how do you... 
how do you lump in like Toni Morrison, mm-hmm. you know, and Stephen King and uh, uh-huh. who else? Uh, Thoreau, uh-huh, and, like uh-huh. all these different voices. How do you lump them in? Like it, you can say that there's an American literature, but it doesn't really. No one's gonna be satisfied with that. But yeah, yeah. Well, and you know what? So let me before we get into this, I want to. You made me think about something else we talked about because I want to ask you if you can like how you got to. I remember in the throes of of what happened in 2020, the pandemic. And like you say, everybody was emotional. The, the, the people were calling it a, a, a racial reckoning. Mm-hmm. Like big companies were getting, people were getting called out. All these things were happening. And I remember at some point, and this might have been prior to 2020, actually, when you and I started having the conversation, well, actually, this was like in a Mad Rhythms rehearsal, I feel. And we were talking about white privilege. And I mm-hmm. remember at that time, you got upset because in your mind, us saying you benefited from white privilege was the same as us calling you racist. Yeah, because I and did you, not yet understand the concept of uh-huh. systemic racism, uh-huh. you know, uh-huh. like systems that have been influenced by race for a long time uh-huh. that you live in. Mm-hmm. And since then, I've come <laughs> to understand that concept. I actually, I don't, you know, I've since. Uh, at this point in my life, I don't even know if we have free will, to be honest, right? Or maybe we do because we have no choice but to have uh-huh. it, right? But I just I just point out those two things. As we talk and people listen to you and I, and they listen to you, especially if they're, you know, if they're new to you because they're just hearing you on my podcast, is I, I just love the, the journey from not understanding about apartheid to not understanding what systemic racism or systematic, however you like to say it, uh, racism <laughs> uh, is, and uh, and then moving to where you are now with such a deep understanding and prolific uh, looking to whatever we're talking about, in this case, the CRT, like that you've taken the journey and you've educated yourself through not only conversations with black folks, like sometimes people don't have black friends, don't know black people and don't talk to black people, but they have all these assumptions and they have all of these things that they think about in terms of black people. But you, by being in Mad Rhythms, you have the benefit of being around black people all the time. And we have real discussions. It's not just, we talk about this over here and that over there. We collectively talk about everything and how it affects people and how it makes them feel and those things. And I think it garners for a more honest and realistic approach to figuring things out that other people in the world aren't even taking the time to really dig into. It's tough because besides the tap dance, of course, the tap dancing <laughs> is the greatest gift. Uh-huh. But that's close second. Uh-huh. Because, you know, growing up as a white dude uh-huh. in the United States and the, the <laughs> in the suburbs, the isolated <laughs> suburbs of like the Midwest, uh-huh. you have so many questions mm-hmm. and you just and or then there's questions. There's, you get answers to questions that you didn't even know you had a question. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And now the, the, just the level of cognitive dissonance uh-huh. and to actually get answers. Maybe I don't always like the answers you know, because <laughs> right? they'll, they'll hurt me. Uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. like it hurts. And yeah. that's OK. Yeah, it's okay and we had some hurt. real conversations, man. Yeah. Like both of us were all in tears dealing with some of those things that that hurt you and finding out about historically. So but I get be, it. But beyond being hurt, I would rather know the truth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would rather know what's true, what's real. Uh huh. You know, and put up with the hurt. There's one tap dancer <laughs> that I argue with from time to time. We won't say their name. But their their tactic when it gets heated is to be like, well, I know you're like a racist because I've heard of you, you know, getting mad at Brill and, and questioning why they're doing certain things in Mad Rhythms. Huh? Do you deny it? And, I, and I'm like cracking up because <laughs> that doesn't offend me. Right. You know what I mean? Like he's trying to... I mean, they, uh, they're they saying that to try to hurt me like an ad hominem attack. Uh-huh. And it's true, but I don't feel that way anymore because I took time to think about it and change how I think, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Not that what I was doing was, like, racist, as you say, like, Jim Crow racist, mm-hmm. but I would say that it was in this systemic form. Yeah. Where the privilege is to not have to it's think to about it. to not have to race. think about it, absolutely. So you just say stuff, you know, you just say, you react to things, uh-huh. and everyone's looking at you like, you just haven't thought about this <laughs> for enough, you just haven't yeah. thought about this at all. Well, you, you don't understand reacting, the right? luxury of not having to think about it. Yeah. 
So I write back. I'm just like, yeah, everything you said is absolutely right. They'd be like, well, how does that make you feel? I'm like, I feel just fine because that's not who I am anymore. So you can't mm-hmm. really insult me with that because, yeah, that's that, that's okay. Yeah. I was wrong, and, and I feel better now, you know? Yeah, and I think, I mean, and that's the reality. We say we want people to grow. Just recently, I was talking, I don't even remember who I was talking to, but I was saying that you and I were going to record the podcast this week. We were going to talk about CRT, and that was going to, you know, get into a lot of other things. And then I laughed, and I was like, man, and I remember, I always, you know, say I remember way back when with Tristan. And then I, I, I don't remember who I was talking to, but that person said, what made you continue to talk to Tristan? Like, what made you, like, not just, oh, he doesn't understand He's racist, whatever, whatever those thoughts could have been, and just what well, that's it. And I was like, well, this is where tap dance comes in. We were bonding through tap dance and bonding through being in this company together, growing as artists and connecting on the wood and those things. So I believe that also seeing like if you don't want to change, you're not even gonna engage with me. So the fact that from day one, even when you didn't agree, you always engaged. And we always were able to have these conversations and maybe they could get heated or maybe they didn't or maybe we didn't talk for a while. But I think we had real growing pains as friends. I mean, I call you my brother. You've been in Mad Rhythms 13 years. We family. So at this point, I'm not even arguing or having a conversation with a stranger or just a guy or just a dude. I'm having a conversation with my family. And you know, sometimes the family conversations can be to get the heatest, the mm. the most heated. I don't I don't know how I want to say the that, but, but the heatedest. But you know what I mean. Like I think because I love you and care about you as a person, when we have these conversations, I never have to resort to he don't even care about black people or he doesn't even care about me. And I think I hope you feel the same way. So when we have these conversations, we, when we get into the thick of it, we always know that. You and I, brothers, this thing like Mad Rhythms is my is my life dream, and you are a big part of it, and helping to keep it going, and, and by being a part of it yourself, and then taking ownership in it, and now you're creating and producing for it. So that makes us family, and with family, we're gonna figure out a way to get it right. <laughs> I agree with all that, but for me, not to get all mushy. Oh, you was about to say I ain't family. I was gonna say <laughs> no, but I always I see you more as like a like a fatherly figure. Mm. Just because I knew you when I was a child. Oh, and you were I didn't an authority even think about that. as when I was a child. You know what I mean? You <laughs> yeah. never kind of break out of that, I don't think. Yeah. Interesting. You know, even though there's people like that now like our ages uh-huh. put us in the same category of life. Right, right. You'll still always feel like that person is just one step above mm. whatever that'll be. So but everything else, I agree. I love you. I know you. So someone says they love you. You're supposed to say it back. Yeah, I, I was. I was waiting on that. I was. Uh, you know. No, I got it. I know it, brother. I feel it. I and I know. Too, and I know the changes that we've been through, and the things that we've done to grow as a as a tap company and a family. And so, you know, when you see Mad Rhythms out here now, know that it's all the people here and within that have made it be what it is and become what it is becoming because we're still growing we're still mm. we're still not where we want to be yet and when we get to where we want to be whew. so let's get into it so well yeah the ability to have these conversations yep. to yep. talk about tough subjects and to have the tools to work through it to yep. not just go in blind to have like a, a structure that you can use that's one of the goals of critical <laughs> race theory. Huh? How's that for us? I like that. I like that. That is that is quite a segue. I like that. You you did that like you know what you're doing. Like you got your own podcast or something. So I know Vanessa over there looking like when y'all gonna start talking about this? Right stuff? now. It's right now. <laughs> right now. Right now. So go ahead. Play play that first clip. So what is critical race theory well okay let me give you the history i got off the dome and i actually have some reading prepared because i think it's better (laughs) we hear what the actual absolutely write it absolutely have to say absolutely like the the big dogs of crt Uh uh-huh but real quick off the top of my dome civil rights movement in the 60s right civil rights act and civil rights voting act uh what is that 64 and 65 Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you know we had a lot of laws change and that changed people's behaviors, but not completely. Obviously, racism didn't go away. Right. So a bunch of, you know, smarty pants people wondered, well, how come? Now the laws, there's equality in the law, but there's not equity mm. in the public. Mm. 
So let's explore that. Uh-huh, and and uh-huh. it was in the 1970s, who's called like the father of critical race theory, mm-hmm. Dr. Derek Bell Jr. Mm-hmm. He started teaching classes at Harvard. Okay. And then when he left in, I think it was 1979, his students uh, took over. They were going to replace... Dr. Bell uh-huh. with like I think like two white teachers or something and, and they said we'd rather have like a, a, a teacher of color uh-huh. teach this class about people of you know essentially people of color you know mm-hmm. they, they just part of one of the ideas is that that's who would know about it best right so wait let, let's pause real quick <laughs> so I love the fact that even in a class where they were teaching where he was teaching critical race theory when he left they were gonna replace him with two white guys <laughs> Yeah, they needed two. <laughs> two, but two white guys. Yeah. And the students were like, yeah, now that's kind of, y'all must ain't been in the class that we've been in. Exactly. So I just, I love that that was, I love that knowing that their first impression was, let's replace him with these two white guys. And that the students was like, no. So the students uh-huh. started their own class. Ah, okay. Like, I'm, I'm not sure if it was college credit or not. I didn't uh-huh. read about that. Uh-huh. But they started their own class. And uh, they graduate, they start teaching the classes themselves, and they start writing and publishing work, and that's how critical race theory builds. Mm. And it doesn't even really get its name until the end of the 80s. I think they had, like, a big meeting. Uh I want to say 89, I could be wrong. But they had, like, a big meeting where they kind of, like, you know, they looked Uh at everything that people have done, like all these articles and documents, poems, books, Mm -hmm. music, Mm -hmm. like all this stuff. And they're like, well, this is... This is what it is, and that's kind of where. And it got that's where the name. name yeah. That's where it got his name from. Mm-hmm. Okay, you got that clip. Well, first, oh, you want to do the re- you want to read so, the exact definition. So these are here are like the main points. Okay, uh, it's from the book "Words That Wound," uh-huh. which is like a, a First Amendment a book about the First Amendment and like hate speech. Like, okay, should okay. hate speech be legal? Like, should we be free? Anyways, anyways, uh, from 1993, the authors are. Mari Matsuda, okay. Richard Delgado, Kimberly Crenshaw, mm-hmm. and uh, Charles R. Lawrence III is the other author. I believe he was a student. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't want to get it wrong. Kimberly Crenshaw definitely was yeah, a student. Yeah, yeah. And Richard Delgado, I'm not sure, but I know that he was one of the teachers they brought okay. to talk at their class okay. that they, they made. Yeah, so. Kimberly Crenshaw is the name that I hear the most. Yeah, she's, she's kind of like the most famous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, All right, so from the words... Of the people who wrote it, this is what critical race theory is. Number one, critical race theory recognizes that racism is endemic to American life and criticizes such things as federalism, which is just like how the government talks of the states and how the government works. Mm -hmm. Uh, Privacy, traditional values, established property interests. Mm -hmm. Is stuff like that. So pretty much systemic racism right, right. is the first tenet. Number two, critical race theory expresses skepticism towards dominant legal claims of neutrality, objectivity, colorblindness, and meritocracy. Mm, dominant, say it again, say it again. I want to hear that one again. Dominant legal claims of neutrality, mm-hmm. ob- objectivity, colorblindness, and meritocracy. <laughs> so in other words, I don't see color. Exactly. (laughs) Why that's a problem. Okay. Keep going. Keep going. Number three, critical race theory challenges ahistoricism and insists on a contextual historical analysis of the law. So in other words, you can't take it out of context. You have to include context with it to understand why it is the way it is. Yeah, like when people talk about the Constitution, like, like Second <laughs> Amendment debate, be like, well, the founding fathers said we had to have guns, but that was also when a bear could kill you at any moment. <laughs> and and a regulated militia is not every person with a gun on their hip. No, it's a regulated <laughs> militia. Yeah, I've I've heard I've heard people talk about that one, and also that was at a time when to load a gun it took like three point five minutes because it was muskets. Yeah, so- and- so this is an example. so all these That's context. are an example of that. Uh-huh. Right. Number 4. Critical race theory insists on recognition of the experiential knowledge of people of color and our communities of origin in analyzing law and society. Mhm. Ask the people you're making laws about what they what think, they the think about the law. Yeah. And that that's that's interesting. Cuz that uh, is 
it's common sense. Like literally, you want to make a law about somebody, ask them what they think about it. Seems, seems, <laughs> seems easy. Seems so now. easy, right? Apparently not. <laughs> Number five, critical race theory is interdisciplinary and eclectic. It borrows from several traditions, mm-hmm. including liberalism, mm-hmm. law and society, feminism, Marxism, post-structuralism. Oh, that's it. That's it. You said Marxism. Oh, shit. Uh, the, every, every, everybody out here that's got a problem with it talks about, you know what, they borrow from Marxism. Nobody mentions any of the other isms. <laughs> post-structuralism, uh-huh. critical legal theory, uh-huh. pragmatism. And mm-hmm. nationalism. And critical legal theory is the one I hear other people that know about it talk about how it's taught the most because as a as a legal theory in law school. Yeah, first like the like Derek Bell's students and uh-huh. other people like other places that were kind of catching on uh-huh. teamed up with the critical legal studies people, uh-huh. right? Which also borrows from an eclectic bunch of stuff. Right. Right. Um. Critical thinking being yes. the key words, and then and and this is like leftist too, uh-huh. right? with a very strong like focus on left left and left centered politics. Uh-huh. And while in there, the criti- who would become the critical race theorists are like, well, have you guys ever like applied what you're saying to yourself, uh-huh. and through the lens of race? Uh huh. And they got real mad at them, and they're like, what? What we didn't, you know, uh-huh. you calling us race? And so they reacted just like. White people react when you ask them to think about something. Yeah, 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 yeah. What we were just talking about before. Right, right, right. The before times. And so then they separated from them. Uh Uh-huh. So they they, they critiqued Uh the leftists, you know, were like, well, why don't you apply it to yourself? And and they didn't like that. Gotcha. Uh, So interesting, interesting. I, 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 I didn't know that. And that makes sense. Yeah, that they separated because they literally were asking them to apply it to yourself. Which is funny because the more you read about this, you uh-huh. find a lot of talking points yeah. that people on the right side of politics could use. Uh-huh. Because they're always comparing them to this other group. But you could also say it's like they they were even too nuts Let, for the nutballs over let's here. Say we the, think they're nuts, and they thought these people wait, were Wait, nuts. let's say the right wing of politics. Because when you say the right side, it makes it... Some people might think you mean versus the wrong side. <laughs> I knew what you meant. Yeah, well, th- this is also <laughs> why it gets tricky to talk to people about this because words have been so equivocated to mean different things. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Right? Like, like right means right and right. <laughs> uh, and left means left and left. And left. <laughs> yeah, that's t- and like liberalism. Uh-huh. If you say to someone and be like, well, our liberal values, what? I'm not a, I don't know why I went to a Southern accent. Way, but <laughs> I'm not no liberal. What are you talking about? I know why you went to a Southern accent. <laughs> and then they never think like, well, what's the root word of liberty? Right, right. <laughs> it's liberal. It's liberal. You know? It doesn't mean the capital L version. So you can't like talk to people. Yeah, like, yeah. But again, I think that's where context comes in because even then, as you're talking about those things, if once you keep them in context, then it should cut down on the misunderstanding. Yeah. So, last point, number six, critical race theory works towards the end of eliminating racial oppression as part of the broader goal of ending all forms of oppression. Say that one more time, please. For the cheap seats. CRT works towards the end of eliminating racial oppression as part of the broader goal of ending all forms of oppression. And we don't want CRT taught. See, now I'm doing the Southern accent. It's I don't hard know. Not to. <laughs> we don't want CRT taught in our schools. We don't want it taught to our children. Why? Because it's trying to end racism. Well. <laughs> How about we talk about some crazy? So now we know what it is, right? Yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah. the system is racist opposed to just individuals. Just, yeah, It's yeah. not just like something that lives in just individual people. It affects us all mm-hmm. to a different degree. Well, it's also, it, it, to me, it sounds like I, I, there's, there's, there's policy over, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There's, there's policy and then there's, um, I can't think of the other word now, the behavior that's accepted. Culture, policy and culture, policy over culture. Sometimes you can change policy, but if all the culture doesn't change with it, sometimes it doesn't matter. So it sounds like critical race theory is a way to look at examining why we have to change culture as well. 
the fancy legal word they use <laughs> uh-huh. is like it's de jure on the books uh-huh. and de facto in the streets. Uh-huh. Right? De jure is, is what the law says. Uh-huh. De facto well, is, is how what people, actually Yeah, happens. what actually happens. Yep. Right? And that's what uh, I was just reading Dr. King's um, Where Do We Go From Here? Mm-hmm. I, I believe 1968. And he talks about enforceable laws and unenforceable laws. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Like you can make a deadbeat dad pay money to support his family, but you can't make him love them. Love his family. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. But why doesn't he love them? You know what I mean? Like, there's, <laughs> there's something something wrong. If they didn't do anything to the person, they're mm-hmm. just there's mm-hmm. something influencing them. Yeah, yeah. But you can't make a law that tells people to love people. Right. But why shouldn't people love? Like, yeah. That, that it seems to make sense what we should do, but why don't we? And right? then uh, I think a further exaggeration of that is now people say things like well changing the law isn't going to make much of a difference and i'm like well it's a start if your answer is to do nothing and i mean i hear that now of course about gun laws because we keep having these mass shootings Mm -hmm. but even in stuff like especially like with police violence because that's in the news a lot because well they keep beating people up and killing people um but and somebody will say well you know they should change this law and change that law and it's like and then somebody will say, well, changing the laws isn't going to change the culture. And I'm, I'm like, yeah, but it's a start. It does and it doesn't. Yeah. But the part that does <laughs> is still good. It's yeah, still yeah. Good. I mean, if it can influence the culture, for starters. It does. Yeah. It does. So to recap, critical race theory mm-hmm. talks that racism is systemic and not just individuals. Mm-hmm. Weary of legal neutrality and objectivity and mm-hmm. colorblindness and meritocracy, insists on a contextual historical analysis of the law, has recognition of the experiential knowledge of people of color in analyzing mm-hmm. said law, mm-hmm. is very interdisciplinary and borrows from like everything. All these under different the moon, other things, yep. And is Against racism and oppression. <laughs> it's against all oppression. It's against, yeah. But is starting here because they think it's the worst one. Uh-huh. All right? So. But, I mean, they, they say it's it's America's original sin and that it's the worst sin is is slavery. So racism is, yeah, intertwined and deep. But so for the people who oppose critical race theory, and I know we, we have one in particular we're going to talk about um it's so interesting to me it's all about critical race theory as a institution itself almost allows people to examine re-examine things that have happened historically how they apply to things that maybe they would never connect them with and then that allows them to maybe rethink how they apply things and how they treat things which could have people out here changing their minds and being nicer and trying not to be part of the problem but then the people in who are in power don't want to give up that power so the goal is to keep us separated keep us you know thinking one way so that we never start examining oh, let me re-examine my approach to this so who who's one of those critics so we can pinpoint the, <laughs> the controversy to one guy his name's Christopher Rufo, uh-huh. uh, he's a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, uh-huh. which is like a right-wing think tank. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he's he's the guy who engineered the controversy, uh-huh. right? And we'll actually hear him tell the the story of the day that it happened. <laughs> uh, but first, I have an edited uh, version of a video you can find on YouTube. I encourage people to go listen to it. I'm right. not, I don't want to censor anybody's YouTube video. Uh-huh. Well. Alex Jones is a, is a D-bag, but, but absolutely. But people should go and watch his video after listening to this, because I don't want anyone to think that I edited anything uh, un- unfairly. Yeah, I tried to get the finer points, and I left out a lot of stuff that I think would support my position because it's so ridiculous. But before I ad hominem the work <laughs> anymore, let's just listen to what they have to say. Okay. So this is in a video like called. I think it's like I think it's like what is critical race theory or uh-huh, just critical uh-huh. race theory with a question mark on it. So, here so we go. for anybody yeah. tuning in, we've already discussed what it is. So if you tune in and you just now hear this guy talking about what it is, this is what he thinks it is and wants you to believe it is. 
Critical race theory is everywhere. It's rapidly becoming the new orthodoxy in America's public institutions, and yet most Americans have no idea where it comes from and what kind of society it envisions. In this video, I'll walk through the history of critical race theory, explain why it's a threat to the country, and most importantly, show you how you can fight it. Let's start at the beginning with a short history of Marxism. Traditionally, the Marxist left has built its political program on the theory of class conflict. Marx believed that the primary mechanism of power in society was the relationship between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. The solution to this conflict, according to Marx, was revolution. He believed the proletariat would eventually gain consciousness of its plight, seize the means of production, and usher in a new socialist society. <laughs> Over the course of the 20th century, a number of regimes attempted Marxist revolution, and all of them ended in disaster. Right away to the Marxism. So, I'll, I'll, I'll give him one point, okay. and I'll take away a point. Uh-huh. So he's still at zero, but <laughs> I'll give him one point. The critical race theorists uh -huh. do like referencing Marxism uh -huh, and Karl uh -huh, Marx and uh -huh, stuff like that. Uh -huh. Now, what they're actually using for Marxism is is different, uh -huh. right? So, like, what he's saying, this is just the Communist Manifesto, uh -huh. right? Whenever they talk about communism or Marxism and, like, what people use, right, right. they only mean the Communist manifesto, manifesto, at least uh -huh. in my experience. Uh -huh. Because they always go to this. When really Marx, is, uh, Marx wrote about a lot of things. Uh -huh. For example, have you heard of the theory of alienation? No. All right. Well, Talk to me. This is this is a really cool one. If you're sitting in a cubicle, uh -huh. actually, let me ask you this: Why do you tap dance? Why do I tap dance? Because I love it. Because you love it. Yes. Does it feel natural <laughs> for you to tap dance? Yes. Do I you, can't imagine my life without it. Could you make more money not tap dancing by going into a different job? Absolutely. Would, <laughs> would you be able to tap dance like you do now if you had to sit in, in an office or work on an assembly line eight hours a day? Nope. Marx would argue that being essentially forced, I mean, I guess you could always choose to be homeless, of right, course. Right, right, right. But, you know, if you want to make enough money for a house, mm -hmm. I don't have a house. Right. Uh, if you want, you know, all that stuff, that, that good stuff, then you have to be at this cubicle eight hours a day. You have uh, to be at the assembly line. Uh-huh. But that's not your natural state. You would do naturally something else if you could. Right. Right, which doesn't mean everyone would be a tap dancer. We know that. Right, right, right. But just you're alienated from what you would naturally do. And he argues that there's enough diversity of, of stuff that we can do. Uh -huh. You can find something you naturally like. Not all tap dance is fun. Writing grants isn't <laughs> yeah. the most fun part. That feels oh, like being in an office. Don't even get started. <laughs> but it's different than just like stapling, you know, stapling papers together. Right, you know, and right, tearing right. carbon copies at a job that. You know, you do it because it's it's satisfying. There's a goal that supports your natural thing you want to do. Yeah, like in yeah, a way, absolutely. writing this grant is just the natural extension. You still work hard. Yep. You take that money and you pay dancers like me, uh -huh. so I can pay my rent, and we spread that around to the community. Mm -hmm. You're providing. You're paying taxes. Yeah. You're doing what's natural. Right. Marx would argue that we that's one aspect of communism, you know, or, or socialism rather that we would benefit from mm -hmm. because we're technologically advanced enough now where we can make enough food, we could do enough everything. Right, right, right. That you could work very little and then do what you want to do, what comes natural to you, which, just like your tap dancing, doesn't mean you sit and watch TV all day. Right, for right. some people it might be. <laughs> uh-huh. But he argues that for most people, if you have this luxury time, you will do like what we do. Yeah. And it, take our natural passion for something and, and find and, a way to make that find a way to, to make that yeah make make find a way to make a living from doing something you love but you never hear about the concept of alienation which is a big part of marxism, of marxism. Interesting. but you never hear about that you hear about the the, the proletariat right. rising that's against all, the bourgeoisie yep yep that's the only thing i've ever heard of marxism uh but 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 because they do talk a lot about, about marxism i think sometimes just to like they'll slip it in like for example of like a free speech thing Marxism, <laughs> and I'd be like, "Well, you gotta pick something else that you know won't like." Yeah, yeah. Piss you feel like maybe, maybe it's kind of a dig at folks, right? It's it's sexy to bring up Marx because people get mad at it. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm. I can't read their minds, but that's how it feels. It's, it's like. one of those buttons. 
Well, I know when I'm at a bar and there's some dude who's like too patriotic, I'll just be like, well, wouldn't you like to own the value of your own labor power? Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> yeah, that'd be nice. All right. It's Southern again. <laughs> Yes, that'd be nice. Yo, right. I'll be like, po- ha, you're a Marxist. Look, look, when gotcha. this podcast blows up in the South, we're going to have some people f- coming for us. We keep doing Southern accents every time we talk about the ignorant folks. We got to stop that. There yeah. are some logical good people in the South. I just want to say that. Well, it's a product of our being <laughs> you know, conditioned to only see Southern this is poor true. Uh, white this, people on TV this is true. presented as ignoramuses. Uh-huh. Right? This is part of the conditioning. Yep, this is yep. some of the CRT scholars argue in favor of like the poor white people in the Appalachians. Uh-huh. Because they're like, ignore them to your detriment. Uh-huh. Because there's a lot of these people out there. Uh-huh. We're all talking about equality here, equality here, but no one ever talks about like the poor white people uh-huh. in like these Appalachian regions. Yeah. Right? And if if one day a politician's gonna go in there and just promise them a better life and give them some stuff. And get and all like, that support. Just like the Irish, pre-Civil War and post-Civil War, <laughs> you trade them, you know, now you're white you know and what? we care about you. That's why I like, uh, I don't okay. know if you've read, uh, why, you, why you pulling up that next thing, I don't know if you've read or heard about Reverend William Barber. He talks about the poor people's movement. Mm-hmm. And he bases it on King and his whole thing like there's that famous scene um where he's in the jail and he tells uh and the, and the uh, there's some exchange between Martin Luther King Reverend Doctor cuz there's a whole thing about why they stopped calling him Reverend or Doctor uh Reverend Doctor Martin Luther King is talking to one of the jail workers and and he's laughing at him saying you know why why you out here doing this and he's like you know how much do you make da 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 da, da. You should be out here with me, and there's that, and there's that whole thing. So Reverend William Barber spanned or, or spawned from that the Poor People's Movement, and if you go on, you'll see that's probably the most diverse because they're like, look, if you poor, we need to come together and figure this thing out, and that's where you will start seeing the 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 Appalachian folk in there. They're part of the Poor People's Movement, so it goes from, of course, the inner cities and all of our major cities, but then he's reaching out to those folks that he knows are the real forgotten about Americans that certain people, you know, talk about in, in their political speeches. But so just that's just a note for you, Reverend William Barber and the Poor People's Movement, the Poor People's Campaign. That's literally somebody who's paying attention to what you just said. All right, I'll check it out. So I'll give, I'll give Rufo a point because they do talk about Marxism a lot, uh-huh. maybe even when they don't need to, <laughs> just piss people off. Uh-huh. But I take away a point... <laughs> Just because one, nobody's really talking about the proletariat and the bourgeoisie in these these papers sometimes, but really not. They're talking about <laughs> Marx's other stuff he writes about. Right, right. But just the fact, if you read history, American history, U.S. American history, they blame communism for everything. everything yep. Right? I just, <laughs> I, I finished the book like a month ago, Turn Away Thy Son, about the Little Rock Nine. The Little Rock Nine, uh-huh. Right, by Elizabeth Jackaway. And I just, if you just search in communist, uh-huh. right, this is what they're doing. So Governor Faubus, the guy who called in the guard, that damn Faubus. when he was running for governor, <laughs> when he was running for governor, they uh-huh. accused him of going to uh, a communist school. They, they purported to show Faubus had once been a student at the communist commonwealth college in Mena, <laughs> Arkansas. So they were calling him a communist. Wow. He definitely was not a communist. No. <laughs> but they used that against him. Well, it's funny that while, while, while you're looking for that next thing, I can well, I always... Can edit some of this. Yeah, yeah, and I can always chime in too because it just makes me think it's always the boogeyman. Marxism is the boogeyman. Communism is the boogeyman. Like, it's, it's always a way to shift the blame from good old American white systemic oppression okay I can go through these <laughs> no, right. okay I, I go through these quickly uh, one guy accuses you know I mean I'm just reading off how many times they use the word communist here this guy accuses uh, he, he's he's sure that there's a vast communist conspiracy to other, undermine southern institutions uh-huh. especially segregation uh, this guy Jim Johnson who was running against Faubus made frequent allusion to the threat of communist subversion. Uh-huh. The chairman of the Senate Internal Security Subcommittee developed an obsession with the communist menace as a source of the movement for desegregation. Mm. Uh, these two guys, Guthridge and Pruden, insisted the movement towards integration was part of an international communist conspiracy. Uh-huh. Uh, signs say race mixing in our schools is a communist doctrine. 
proponents of black civil rights were a part of the communist Communist, capital. I mean, you just just go on and on and on, and it's just white politicians accusing each other of being communists. (laughs) And none of them were communists. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were real communists, but they weren't allowed to be the politicians. Right. I mean, it's just, it's so ridiculous. Like, children... Just like pointing at each other. No, you're a stupid head. No, you're a stupid head. But your head looks stupid. Well, your but head looks it stupid. just goes to show the pattern. Everything has to be have to ha- has to have a boogeyman. Marxist scholars of the era. <laughs> Sorry. So CRT, which we started this about, is the boogeyman for everything about race and education and getting rid of racism. Right? Communism, Marxism. These are all things used as the boogeyman. And, and the more you talk about it, the more it just totally aligns in my eyes that, yes, we have to have a boogeyman because then you can blame it on the boogeyman and you never have to accept. But that's why I'm mad at people, you know, that we would say is on our side, whatever that is. Because if they would just read, uh-huh. like, a history book about desegregation, uh-huh. you would see communist, 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 right? Like they, I think they should teach the children in school. Like they should show them this stuff, so that when a politician goes on, they'll be like, "Well, this thing is is right, communist. right, 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 like, right." Aha. Anything that's not communist is just that you don't like. You call communist uh-huh. big red flag, uh-huh. and then uh-huh. people will stop doing that maybe. But it's clear nobody nobody any calls of these books. them out on it because everybody just it's it's almost like the whole thing of of people are more upset with being called racist than the fact that. They do racist things like I'll, I can do racist stuff and you can call that out, but just don't call me a racist. Well, it's, it's the boy who cried wolf, <laughs> except they've not heard the boy. Well, that's a bad analogy. I was going to say, wait, huh? Because then he actually gets eaten by a wolf. Yeah. We're going to edit that out. <laughs> no, we keeping that in. <laughs> but yeah, it's just if you just would read like some of the basic books. Yeah. The amount of times people call something communist. You would start rolling your eyes and be like, oh, come on. Oh, yeah. And Rem- especially because we know that was all nonsense now in the future. But this stuff now, that is communist. Uh, Even though a hundred years of <laughs> nonsense wasn't actually wasn't communist. Actually, but yeah. this, I think this is communist. Yeah, but well, all that. My mom was a Black Panther, and they were, they called the Panthers communist. Well, Franz Fanon, who influenced Stokely Carmichael uh-huh. and Kwame Ture, did have a, a pretty big socialist streak. He would uh-huh. also toss out Big Papa Marx when it, <laughs> it suited him. But yeah. Anyway, so CRT is a lot of different things. <laughs> right, right. This video starts off with the Communist Manifesto <laughs> as their main influence. How many pages do you say the Communist Manifesto is? What do you think? Three. Well, 23. 23, okay. But, I, I knew what it, whatever it is, it wasn't hundreds of pages. I knew that. But Karl Marx's Das Kapital is like like 500 pages. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But they always reference it anyways. So, they claim it's Marxist. Okay. Next part. The Marxist scholars of the era, calling themselves critical theorists, simply updated their theory of the revolution. They set out in search of another entry point for their politics, and found it in the social and racial unrest of the 1960s. For many of the intellectuals on the left, the entire project of colorblindness, meritocracy, private property, and individual rights came to be seen as a failure. So they went back to the drawing board and increasingly sought to revive the most radical strands of Marxist thought from the previous generation. So he 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 gets some parts kind of right uh-huh, because, uh-huh. because yeah they did the four things we said right the four things we uh-huh. said right uh, property traditional I mean the things he said is what we just read yeah in yeah the book. So absolutely that's true but is it because they're secret communists right who and they went are back trying to like you know install a new <laughs> Soviet Union not quite nah nah and that's funny they went back and got the previous generation's version of communism like. I don't know. Anyways, but moving on. Uh-huh, I spent uh-huh. a lot of time on that first one. <laughs> Here we go. Critical race theory is an academic discipline that came to fruition in the 1990s, building on the intellectual framework of critical theory and identity politics. Sometimes it's directly labeled critical race theory, but it's usually deployed under a series of euphemisms, such as equity, this social right justice, diversity and inclusion, and culturally responsive teaching. This is deliberate. The critical race theorists are masters of language construction. 
In their academic work, they've directly attacked the principles of non-discrimination, colorblindness, individual rights, private property, school integration, freedom of speech, and meritocracy. So that's the clip that when I heard that, uh, when I was listening earlier, preparing for our talk, that's the one that got me because I thought that all of these people who call everything critical race theory were doing so because they didn't know what it was. I didn't realize it's because this guy is telling them, no, all of this stuff that wasn't originally critical race theory, equity and inclusion, all of this stuff is critical race theory. And I'm like, oh, so it was designed to be the all-encompassing, anything related to blackness, anything relating to race education, we're going to put that under the critical race theory umbrella and then talk against it because it's all critical race theory. And I'm like, that's interesting because I, I, I thought that was like because people didn't know. I didn't know that that was by his design. Yeah, like there. Well, <laughs> we'll, we'll get into like how it's it's kind of gross later. But yeah. yeah. So they just equivocate this to mean everything. Everything. Yeah. So moving on. In a foundational paper called "Whiteness as Property," the critical race theorist Cheryl Harris has proposed suspending private property rights, seizing land and wealth from the rich, and redistributing it along racial lines. The critical race guru Ibram Kendi has proposed the creation of a department of anti-racism with the power to nullify, veto, or abolish any law at any level of government and silence the speech of political leaders and intellectuals who are not deemed anti-racist. The new department would be unaccountable to voters, the executive, or the legislature. In other words, it would become an all-powerful fourth branch of government and mean the end of the federalist system. <laughs> Finally, like the critical theorists before them, the critical race theorists would abolish the economic system of capitalism and replace it with an economic system of collectivism. According to Kendi, in order to truly be anti-racist, you also have to truly be anti-capitalist. Identity is the means, Marxism is the end, same as it ever was. Same as it I don't was. know about you, but I like the idea of the Department of Anti-Racism. <laughs> yeah, I mean that sounds pretty damn good to me. <laughs> yeah, so so a lot of that is true, but you you'll hear them bring out the same people uh -huh. over and over uh -huh. again. Uh -huh. It gets kind of annoying to hear them misconstrue what they want. Uh -huh. Kendi, he he writes more acerbically, like he does write to kind of. It feels like outrage sometimes, uh -huh. but then you got to read what comes before and after. Because it'll, you know, it, it's just being like, if someone's like, well, this guy says, you know, white people are the problem. Mm, mm -hmm. But then, right, but they don't tell you that right, right after under, the he person says. goes, and they can also be the solution. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, you could be offended if they say you're the problem. Uh-huh. But it's not as offensive when you just read, like, but also you're, you, it's up to you. Right, 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 right. Save the day. <laughs> you got some ability to help. Right, right. You know, so, you know, so he's not saying anything not true there, uh -huh. but he's not giving you a whole picture. Same with Cheryl Harris. They like to be, how can white people be property? You saying we're property? It's like, no, it's because one, <laughs> black people used to be used literal to be property. Yep, treated as. And then as soon as black people were not property, they, trade, they changed that property right into... Property, property rights. Right, right. Redlining, you know, not giving the GIs the money. Uh -huh, the, the GI bill. bill, yep. All all of that stuff that we, you know, we, we know a lot about now. Yeah. Redistricting. Yep, yep. So she argues in the in the paper, I haven't read it in a while, but she argues to like take some like public land or to take some private land, which of course is not gonna be popular with the people that own the <laughs> that own private land. land, right, right. Uh but and and put that towards housing, open space, just to give make those spaces that can benefit yeah. people of color. Pretty much it's it's her version of reparations and by a property. Via, yeah, because right. every I've heard so many different versions of it. But what I was going to say about that clip in particular is you know, I, I said oh, I don't know about you, but I don't mind the Department of Anti-Racism, but you can hear it in his voice and it'll become the all-encompassing power and it'll take the place of and I'm like And it's Marxist. And it, right. Well, <laughs> and that was at the very end, but all the stuff he said before, I was like, see, and this is where you go on that tirade to assume that anything that fights the power takes the power like 
I don't know. It's very interesting. And the ominous music. And the ominous music. The music underneath is killing me. I'm just, the whole time, every time you play a clip, I'm like, dude, stop with with the sad piano. Philip Glass, why would you make music for this? Why would you lend your two piano notes to this, this stuff? Anyways, moving on. All right. Critical race theory is quickly becoming the default ideology of our public institutions. I wish. It's spread from the universities to government agencies, public school systems, teacher training programs, and even corporate HR departments. It's been transformed from a series of academic concepts into diversity training programs, corporate compliance modules, public policy frameworks, and public school curricula. So, I, did you hear me say, I wish? <laughs> I wish it, it was our default. In a whole lot of situations. So his real his his claim to fame and his real concern are these in like how companies will implement like sensitivity training. Yeah, and that's why they're going after yeah the the equity and inclusion stuff. Yeah, that's I mean that's his main that's what got his name like on the map was going after like Disney and stuff and we'll hear about that later. Uh, but that that's kind of like his main his main thing. Well, all I know is that, he, he, and that's, and you're right. His and his that's his main thing because that's where the fear is. That's the fear that we can't keep telling people this stuff if they know better. And, so we got to keep them from knowing better. And what gives him ammunition is because, and this is, if you had to find a silver lining out of <laughs> this, all these people uh-huh. uh, that are against CRT, it would be that at least it is like a check that would balance things. So what he does is he scours the globe for um, just people who do the sensitivity training, perhaps poorly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, right, right. Like you, like I mean, and then and different people have different examples of what is 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 poorly. Uh-huh. But like you know, some people might not want to put like a picture of like you know. A celebrity they identify with, like let's say I pick Gwyneth Paltrow, and right, like, right, right. Now put it on this board of oppressor. No, not there. Keep going. Yes, even further. I mean, it's just <laughs> you know, it makes you feel like a child, uh-huh. and you're like, well, you could just explain them this to me like an adult, right, we can right, right. Talk about it, and I'm, you know, but we don't have to. That's the critique they make. Uh huh. And as if that's the norm. Yeah, and sometimes people do it poorly. Yeah. You know, you figure if every company is doing this, every company of a certain size, how many companies is that? Thousands? And he finds the and five he finds or six the, yeah, yeah, that, is, that just picked like a per- the person was having a bad day. I don't know what the deal was. Right, right, right. So that's a valid critique. Uh-huh. And perhaps people shouldn't do it that way if there's enough, you know, if there if, can if be a better way. If there can be a better way to do it, absolutely. So that might be something that's good. Uh-huh. That he does find these things with a magnifying glass. <laughs> that really helps us refine the process. Yeah, because we know what his end game is or his end goal. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. In the previous century, state institutions were presented as neutral, technocratic, and oriented towards broadly held perceptions of the public good. This is no longer the case. Our institutions are being radicalized by critical race theory, and the levers of state power are being turned against the American people with no sign of slowing down. So you, he mentions the neutrality there. Yeah, he keeps mentioning the neutrality. And he's like, these places used to be uh-huh. neutral, uh-huh. but thanks to critical race theorists <laughs> calling them not neutral, now they're not. <laughs> yeah, there's something. I mean, or or because we did sensitivity training, now, now they're, they're no longer not. neutral. Uh-huh, they turn uh-huh. racist. Because people keep talking about race all the time. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know what I mean? <laughs> but he doesn't quite tell you how. Like, right, what right, you, right. What, yeah, what do, you, what do you mean? How How does this happen? And we know that they weren't neutral. Uh-huh. Right? We knew that they weren't. I mean, like the banking stuff in the... Yeah, yeah, we right. We about. knew like, it wasn't knew. neutral. It's just that if you don't call it out in particular, then it's neutral. Until you do, then it's not. Anyways. Here's the problem. Thus far, Americans of good faith have been unable to resist critical race theories blitz through our institutions. There are four main reasons for this. First, most Americans have developed an acute fear of speaking about sensitive social and political issues, especially race. Second, the critical race theorists have constructed their argument like a mousetrap. They claim that any disagreement with their program is simply evidence of the dissenter's white fragility, unconscious bias, or internalized white supremacy. 
They project this idea of false consciousness on all of their opponents. They transform principled disagreement into evidence of guilt. The dissenters are instructed to remain silent, lean into the discomfort, and accept their complicity in white supremacy. Thus, the mousetrap is shut and the program continues without interruption. Third, many liberals, moderates, and conservatives have failed to separate critical race theory's premise from its conclusion. The premise of critical race theory is quite simple. America has a history of slavery, racism, and injustice, and we should examine the relationship between racism, power, and society. This is undoubtedly true. Nobody uh -huh. taking an honest look at American history could deny it. But the critical race theorist's conclusion that the American regime is irredeemably racist <laughs> and must be overthrown through moral, political, and economic revolution is false. But the critical race theorists use their premise as a bludgeon, bullying people into accepting their conclusions. This is dishonest and manipulative. It's entirely logical and moral to accept the premise that the United States has a history of racial injustice, and even that residual racism is still a pernicious force in American society, but reject the critical race theorist political program, which, as we've seen, is little more than repackaged 1960s-style Marxism. Finally, the writers and activists who've had the courage to speak out against critical race theory have often fought on purely theoretical terms, pointing out critical race theory's flawed logic, internal contradictions, and bad history. These are all worthy criticisms, but they move the debate into the realm of the academic and the abstract, which is friendly terrain for the critical race theorists and absolves them from grappling with the practical and tangible consequences of their philosophy. We shouldn't challenge the critical race theorists to debate the finer points of Marx and Marcuse. We must confront them with the reality that they're creating. Wow. Well, you know, <laughs> he gives some ground. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But but that's what I've... So here, what I've come to learn about all of this stuff when I'm in these talks and these conversations is that it's always there's like this tiny grain of truth. Yeah. And then because of that truth, this must be the end result. It's called the slippery slope. There it is. And it's like, but eh, no, it, it doesn't have to be. I just I just can't help but shake my head through that whole thing, man. But I'm glad to have heard how he defines it. Because now I understand more why the people who are against it are. Mm. Some of them. Some people are just straight up. Like I, like I said in the beginning, they don't even know what it really is. They're just told that you should be against it if you agree with this side. But there are some people that I'm sure follow these arguments to the T and then decide, well, then I don't want that. In my opinion, it's the same people that were <laughs> holding signs that said desegregation is communism. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, right? that's true. That's true. The same type of person, the they're, same. They're yep. probably very intelligent, kind people, you know. But Otherwise, somebody convinced them. Someone convinced them. <laughs> with two piano notes. <laughs> right? That, yeah. A smart person can argue a stupid thing very effectively. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Anyways, so then he tells us how we're going to fight it. Mm. So this is the task. It's the happy to music. defeat the ideology of critical Solution race driven. and reassert the American <laughs> ideals of freedom and equality. There are four ways we can accomplish this. Public policy civil rights lawsuits, grassroots mobilization, and winning the public debate. First, we can and must fight critical race theory in the domain of public policy. Last year, my reporting led President Trump to issue an executive order banning critical race theory-based training programs from the federal government. President Biden rescinded this order on his first day in office, but it provided a model for red state day governors one, and legislators who want to protect their citizens from race essentialism, collective guilt, and neo-segregation. Second, we must fight against critical race theory in the courts. To do this, I've launched a new legal coalition to stop public institutions from conducting programs that stereotype, scapegoat, or demean people on the basis of race. Our argument is that critical race theory is not only intellectually and morally bankrupt, but in practice violates existing law. It violates the First Amendment, which protects citizens from compelled speech, the 14th Amendment, which provides equal protection under the law, <laughs> and the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits public institutions from discriminating on the basis of race. Eventually, <laughs> one of our cases will reach the Supreme Court and will win. Third, there's a bipartisan and multiracial coalition that's emerging to fight critical race theory at the grassroots level. Parents have begun fighting against racially divisive curricula in schools, and employees have begun speaking out against Orwellian practices in the workplace. 
Finally, we must develop a new moral language on these issues and appeal to higher principles than our opponents. We must promote the true story of America, a story that is honest about injustices in our history, but places them in the context of our nation's highest ideals and the progress we've made towards realizing them. What does that mean in the context of our... We're going to look at that, history yeah, yeah. through the context of our ideals. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Of our, uh, what does that mean? Yeah, that's that's what I'm... Uh, when he said that, I'm like, wait, what? Right? So he's asking... So one thing that the critical race theorists are... They say in the book that I was reading, uh -huh. they're against like a trans-historical telling of history, where uh -huh. you look at history as if like... Things are true throughout time. Uh -huh. That things are axiomatic opposed to anachronistic okay. at different points. The critical race theorists want to look at how something was then, how it was after, how it is now, uh -huh. how it's going to be. You know, these are all different things. Right. Rufo is telling us, let's look at our history, but through our axiomatic ideals. So the, as, as the way it, it always, the way it is now. The way we think of it now, let's look at it. I mean, I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. Is it, it doesn't. I'm still trying to How do you formulate look at it into through the context of like your ideals. I, yeah. I don't understand. This is an appeal to emotion. In my, he's saying very nice words. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh, but what do they mean? <laughs> well, you gotta ask. What do words mean? Then you know. So, in conclusion, uh -huh. to wrap up this this one, the stakes of this fight are incredibly high. It's not an exaggeration to say that a governing regime based on critical race theory would mean the end of freedom and equality in America. According to their own policy prescriptions, the critical race theorists would limit or abolish the right to private property, freedom of speech, equal protection under the law, non-discrimination, free enterprise, and the federalist system of government. In its place, they would create a new regime of group-based rights, race-based redistribution of wealth, omnipotent bureaucratic authority and active racial discrimination. It's not a program of reform. It's a program of revolution that rejects the founding principles and would overturn the premise of the Constitution. Omnipotent. That's a good word, This cat eh? is good with putting these words in there. But wow. Yeah, this... The <laughs> Right, so we go from. I'm like, just. I'm. 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 Yeah. Go ahead. I'm just. Uh, so we go from one person saying, "Well, you know, like black people used to be property, and then when they weren't property anymore, white people got uh, more property somehow." <laughs> uh, Is there a connection there to they're gonna abolish all private property? <laughs> they're gonna take your home. They're gonna take right, your dog. Right. 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 <laughs> they're gonna lock Spot up. And make him work for the state. Yeah. Well, and you know it's funny. So and it and it, it has me thinking. Well, one, again, I I hear the fear there. The fear there. That's what yeah. keeps coming up because like the way the sixteen. I was uh listening to an interview with uh, Tanahisi Coates, and he was mm. talking about how the sixteen nineteen project made it into legislation. Like, when have you ever heard like this this whole passing the lawsuits and and fighting against it by by doing all this stuff that legal movement that's why i had to make a noise when he talked about it they're suing and they're suing left and right and they're suing over and over again and when it doesn't work they they change it and and sue again for the same thing and they're starting to win stuff like and it's like oh god 